Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deeper Signals Shortcast. In today's episode, we'll be exploring how personality feedback and self-awareness can improve the performance and well-being of healthcare practitioners. So as we start to turn a corner on COVID-19, it's critical that we take the time to explore new ways of supporting healthcare professionals so they can continue to deliver great treatments, work collaboratively, and avoid becoming burned out. To help us explore this question, I'm joined by my colleague, Stephanie Sands, who oversees our coaching services, and Alan Friedman, CEO of J3P Healthcare Solutions. We're very fortunate to have Alan join us today. Alan is a trusted advisor and coach to senior healthcare leaders. Using his experience in personality science and IO psychology, he works directly with America's leading medical institutions, hospitals, and universities to improve their leadership, teams, and culture. Alan, Stephanie, thanks for joining Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you, Alan. So let's kick this off, Alan. Can you tell me a little bit about the J3P story? Like, how did you get into this space solely looking at the the healthcare industry and healthcare professionals? Yeah, a great question. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. So uh, my career really started out in the medical device business, and that was really my introduction professionally to healthcare Personally, I have two daughters and my older daughter, Jules, has autism and a multitude of other special needs. And so there was an intersection between my family's personal experience with the U.S. healthcare system and my professional experience with the healthcare system. And what I realized was that there were really smart people who were really well-intended, who did not have the training or the skills to really exhibit emotionally intelligent, quote-unquote, behavior towards each other and to our personal experience uh, towards patients and, and patients' families. So that's really what, what the, the initial impetus was to kind of want to have a seat at the table in healthcare, if you will. And then uh, I ended up uh, going to graduate school at Columbia University and was exposed to an assessment methodology in terms of how assessments can really be used to make better, well-informed organizational decisions that really can have a positive impact on executives. So when I graduated from Columbia, I took my experience in the healthcare industry and my personal experience with my daughter, with my new education, and then I really founded what was Residency Select at the time, where we utilized a a really well-known, validated psychometric assessment process to select medical students to orthopedic and neurosurgical residency programs initially. And that really was the foundation for what is now J3P Healthcare Solutions, where we basically take you know, data along with a bunch of other data points to positively impact an outcome. And so whether that's our patient outcome, whether it's how people handle dealing with their own emotions, energy, and and how they behave, and whether it's about interpersonal relationships within a a clinic or a hospital, or whether it's even about how person leads others, it's all impacted. And what we want to do is take the same algebra that these physicians learn in medical school or a nurse would learn in nursing school and use different variables as the data points to really do the same thing but as it relates to their self-awareness and ultimately their behavioral output. Interesting. So then, Alan, like what's the working in the healthcare industry, applying what, if I can say, is like more traditional IO principles, like we've known for a long while, how personality predicts, you know, performance. We know how, uh, you know, psychological factors, you know, shape positively and negatively cultures and team uh, behavior. You know, what are some of the biggest challenges then or differences between, you know, quote unquote, 
corporate America where this stuff is usually applied to, you know, healthcare institutions? Is it the same challenges or is it a completely new problem set? Well, I, the, the answer to that, number one, is it depends and yes, right? So <laughs> uh, the reality is, is that there's a lot of similarities. You know, people are people, if you will, right? But where the gap is, and it's a meaningful gap, and it's a profound, uh, it has profound implications on how people are being treated in our quote-unquote healthcare system. And that is, when we have a traditional corporate HR function, which a lot of uh, the healthcare systems around the country, they're, they're huge multi-billion dollar operations that have a chief human resources officer and there's a talent officer, et cetera. And those are great functions and they do great work. The challenge is that there's a disconnect between a traditional corporate mentality when we think about human human resources or talent management and what is needed for people who um, are physicians or who are nurses who basically um, are different. And so we can't take the same approach that we've used in a business environment and apply it to someone who may have just lost a patient on an operating room table yeah. and say it's equivalent. We can't. And it's it's silly for us to think that we can apply the same approach and get the same, if not better, outcomes. And this is something that we see over and over again. And then the, the challenge with that is that the people who need this kind of work, to your point, Reese, the most are often the people that do not have access to it because the resources are not allocated appropriately closest to the to the the clinics where they're needed the most. Yeah. So building on this Alan, I think you know many companies struggle um with knowing who to promote and they typically promote people that are best at their job. I've seen that that's even more profound in healthcare that physicians who are good physicians get promoted into leadership roles without any of um, you know the leadership development needed for them to be successful in a completely different type of role. Do, would you validate that and say that that issue is even more prevalent in healthcare than other organizations? Is that sort of the gap you were identifying? One of the many gaps, but that is a great yeah. point that you bring up. And that is, you know, and I literally just had a conversation with a surgeon at an Ivy League institution in the Northeast this morning about this very topic, which is we take people who are phenomenal individual contributors and they may be NIH funded, they may, you know, have great clinical outcomes, they may um, have been the top at their, in their class at, in medical school or in their residency program. And then what we do is we say, because you're a great individual contributor, without any of the training that you speak about, Stephanie, without any of the prerequisite competency or skills, we then say, we're going to make you a department chair. We're going to make <laughs> yes. you a chief medical officer or worse yet, a CEO. And then we wonder why those people flame out and they fail. And it's no different in the corporate world with taking a rock star salesperson and saying, you know, Alan might be a great salesperson. So of course, he's going to be a great vice president of sales or exactly. regional manager. And this is why those people flame out. And we talk a lot about the understanding of role clarity, right? So if you understand that as a early member of the faculty, you're going to be really evaluated on your contributions. What we need to do is train people to understand themselves and then understand that as they grow in their careers and more is expected of them as more of a leader, they need to exhibit different behaviors. And depending upon their personality, tendencies will depend on how easy or difficult, as both of you know, those behaviors can become or not. And so sticking with this theme of, you know, rock star individual contributors moving into leadership positions or managerial positions, you know, what are those 
core soft skills competencies that are needed the most. I think, you know, like given the work that both of, both of us do, self-awareness obviously sets at the heart of that. But like what are some of the more kind of practical things that time after again, you know, these healthcare rock stars, you know, run into as kind of gaps in their, uh, in their skill set when it comes to being people leaders? Yeah, a, a, another great question. So I think that it's not really black and white. I mm-hmm. think that there's there's a, a component of this where there's the environmental factor. You know, if you look at Kurt Lewin's work, right? You know, behavior is a function of the personality and the environment. Our take on Lewin's work is that it really is a little more complicated than that. So we look at, you know, behavior is a terminal output. What comes before that is how someone thinks. What comes before that is really some what their ten, someone's tendencies are, their personality, their environment. And then obviously what motivates them, right? And so the idea behind this is that when we think about, you know, what makes someone a rock star and what doesn't make them a rock star, if you will, or what differentiates people is that it's really about humility, mm-hmm. about intellectual curiosity, and it's about admitting when you're wrong, which ties into the whole humility concept. And if you think about the environmental variable there, the medical education apparatus trains people to not do that. Yeah. So my job, our job at J3P using, you know, tools such as deeper signals is to untrain these people uh-huh. in terms of how they were trained as it relates to people. Yeah, I think you've hit a really good point there because we turn to healthcare providers as the people that are going to fix us, solve our problems, you know, and make us well again. The idea of experimentation, admitting failure, uh, admitting when you've done something wrong understandably is you know not accepted or uh, kind of tolerated in some respects because you know there's one thing failing to like create a new piece of software and there's another thing failing to kind of actually deliver and help you know someone's well-being um so how do you then start to break down those barriers and allow people because you as you say you're you're going against you know decades of cultural training and you know educational training to say like you know you have to be you always say all right we celebrate those people that are, you know, have a, a very long track history of being a successful surgeon or physician. How do you start to break down that and do that rewiring? I think that for us, in, in the way we approach this work, there's a lot of organizations that do this kind of work. How we differentiate ourselves in our thought leadership is that we truly focus on the individual as a human being, not a widget not professionally, not a rock star surgeon or researcher, et cetera. We want to focus on people as human beings as the primary objective. So our first step in that process is really trust building so that people know that genuinely it really is about helping them as people, as human beings. But the work always exists in the service of the organization and on behalf of the patients for the societal outcome that they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't just exist, oh, we want to make you feel good because we would be dead in the water with the population that we work with. But, But what we do is we change the narrative to say, we need to think about you as a human being in the same way that you care about your patients. And the problem that we have within our healthcare system, at least in the United States, is that we talk a good game about you know, COVID heroes. And we talk about this problem of burnout and wellness and all of these topics that everyone is well aware of, but we do not truly make the investment at the levels at which they are needed so that people actually understand that they matter and they're not widgets. So yeah. the approach to rewiring is starting with them as 
individuals to understand themselves, what we call intrapersonally. Mm-hmm. Once we understand that foundationally on their behalf, then we start working on here's how you interact and intersect with others and how they interact and intersect with you. And the final and most important piece is once that foundation is built and the rewiring is accomplished, if you will, it's then leveraging that skill set on behalf of influencing a much wider audience, which is called leadership. And that is really how we approach the work. And final point is we are not in the business of changing people. We're not in the business calling someone you're this type or not type. What we're in the business in is helping people truly understand themselves at a level that is intimate they've never even experienced before. And we do that by using tools like Deeper Signals along with our credibility and our expertise in interpreting that data in the service and on behalf of them as human beings. Yeah, I think it's to your comment around, you know, COVID heroes and so on. Like you see here, you see in back in the UK, it's just very, it's cheap talk uh, to kind of say these things, but not actually, you know, invest in these people yeah. and help them and give them resources and tools they need to be the best versions of themselves to have the support to keep on doing the important work. But then like the idea of how you really appreciate the individual, how you appreciate their unique profile and what that that means for them and their success, I think is really important because, you know, as a personality psychologist, I think we've, you know, I know that all the studies that show, you know, certain traits predict certain outcomes, but I feel like as an industry, we've really run away with those, those findings. And we have this idea traditionally then it needs to be this one-size-fits-all approach. You need to have X amount of conscientiousness or X amount of emotional intelligence. And if you don't, you know, you're on the uh, scrap heap and you're never going to be able to, you know, become high potential or never going to be able to become uh, a leader or whatever, you know, the outcome could be. I think it's time and it's needed more than ever to take this uh, much more personalized view and, and, you know, a more person-centric view around this is how the chips are falling for you. These are your strengths. These are your challenges. We may differ between, you know, you and I, for example, Alan, our personality is very different, but the way that we can achieve our goals is very different, right? Or we can, sorry, we can leverage different traits to achieve the same goals, but we aren't given the support, insight or coaching, you know, to actually realize that until you've been able to climb the organization, at which point you've got all the bad habits, all the bad behaviors, and you've already left maybe a wake of, you know, dysfunctionality behind you because now you're you know, 20 years into your career. And now we're trying to unpick all of that. Like, we need to be starting much sooner, right? To acknowledge the complexity of personality science and the context, the environment, which I'm glad you mentioned, Alan, and, you know, the combination of these profiles and how people work together, which I'm, makes me, um, you know, very curious to ask you about, instead of asking what profile, you know, what type of healthcare leaders is succeeding most right now, given the COVID pandemic, what, what types of teams do you see really thriving the most? How would you describe the most effective teams in this climate and then maybe the teams that are struggling the most? Yeah, that's that's a, another great question. I think that the people who are thriving, and in fact, there's a um, one of the departments uh, in Boston uh, affiliated with an Ivy League institution that we work very closely with. And it's a running joke whenever we have calls that when we ask, how are you doing? They're doing great. And, and I'm suspect because of what's going <laughs> on in the world. Um, but to answer your question, I think it's a few things. I think that those people are vulnerable. They're authentic. They're humble. They're intellectually curious and they over communicate. 
And so mm-hmm. when you think about those, those kind of competencies that are required, each one of the members of the, the leadership team within this department, they all have varying degrees of tendencies that either help them or work against them in the service of those things. Mm-hmm. They're aware of those things so that they can leverage off of each other to actually accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, which That's ties great. into the culture, right? In terms of the, the organizations that are not doing well, I think that the when we think about the concepts of investing in people, it's one of these things where you know budgets are being cut, things are really tight, and we'll we'll get to that next year. And I will tell you that the definitively and emphatically that the organizations that we've partnered with and that we work closely with, who literally doubled down and signed contracts in the middle of COVID, are thriving, which which frankly I was surprised about, but yeah, but wow. I mean, yeah, like what do I know? I'm just a stupid guy. From that. <laughs> but yeah, so that, 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 the, no, the, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's about acknowledging that people are deserving of investment, and and it's not investment without metrics and without outcomes. But we need to change that narrative that the people stuff is just soft. If we yeah. ignore our people, it's like your teeth when you go to the dentist; they'll go away. Is that? A challenge that you face quite often in that given, say, physicians are working with, you know, the wet stuff, it's like they're actually working on individuals and directly, you know, getting their hands dirty, right, helping people with the hard problems. Does it, like, take, you know, some convincing as to kind of why it's worth thinking about their psychology, about their well-being, about their personality, about their, you know, soft skills? Because in my own experience talking to kind of medical students or even, you know, in very different fields, but that are very kind of quote unquote hard science. It always takes like a a bit of warming up and persuasion to think about, have you ever considered, you know, why you do the things that you do? Mm -hmm. Or have you ever considered why people are different to you or react differently to you? Like this, it feels like sometimes there's a disconnect between, you know, technical skills and abilities and executing against those and you just assume everyone is this black box that can never be understood and or, and it's just completely overlooked. Yeah. Every day, all day. That's what I spend my days <laughs> on, right? And so, but but you know, it's really, again, I'm um I try and simplify things to the best of my ability and our ability. And I think really what it boils down to is really, really educating people on the misnomer of personality and well, that's just his personality, so that's why he does what he does. No, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, it's a complex formula. But the, the key is to understand that, it, and how we break down that skepticism in a very simplified form is think of who you are at home, think of who you have to be and want to be at work. Mm-hmm. Are they identical? Well, no. I'm like, I'm much more quiet at home. I like that. Am, right? So, okay, if we go with that assumption, then we understand that there's a difference of behaviors that's required of you. Why do you feel that you behave in a certain way at home? Well, that's directly impacted by what we call our quote-unquote usual tendencies, Mm -hmm. the tendencies that we wake up with in terms of our personality, right? So if we understand that as a baseline and we understand that, you know, in order for me to be effective at work, I can't be as candid as I am and I need to exhibit more considerate behavior. Well, if I don't know where I am at a baseline, then I can't use the data-driven approach to change the behavior that I need to change in order to get more of what I want. So what we do is we say, what's in it for you? Let's work together to get more of what's in it for you. Now, the beauty of this is that nine times out of 10, 
What's in it for the individual physician or healthcare leader that we're working with is most likely in alignment with what the organization wants and needs from them as well. Mm-hmm. I like those questions that you ask. Are there other ways that you gain buy-in from healthcare professionals around investing in leadership and personality awareness and development? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for us at this point with the credibility that we have and the fact that for, for us as an organization, we spent almost a decade conducting research, publishing in high-impact, peer-reviewed clinical journals, mm, yeah. clinical thought leaders. So that's one thing. Uh, in fact, we we just had a, another one of our um, manuscripts accepted uh, by the American Journal of Medical Quality based on work that we've done with the Faculty Leadership Institute at the Ohio State, can't just say Ohio State. <laughs> but but I think that the the idea is is that um, that more now than ever, and COVID has really highlighted this that people realize that they need to have skills in order to be able to lead other people and to function. So that's one. The other uh, aspect of, of what we've seen, specifically in the academic uh, areas of, of healthcare, is that um, they have these uh, organizational structures within the department where they have a division chief or a section chief. And, and historically, it's been like, yeah, you know, Alan's a good guy, so we're going to make him the division chief for you know, uh, foot and ankle surgery. Okay, great, but Alan doesn't have any leadership skills. And in the past, we didn't really need him, so I have a nice business card, a clinical appointment. It's great. Now... I'm a department chair. I need to have leadership around me as a cabinet so that I can really drive organizational performance because that's what I'm being held accountable to. So those two things combined with our credibility and then, of course, the people with, you know, the the prominent folks that we work with really takes down um, a lot of those uh, skeptics and, and the barriers at this stage of the game. When I first started, I was a heretic. People thought I was crazy. Sure. I'd like to see some of that research. Maybe uh, we can link uh, to that research for our listeners as well. That sounds really interesting. Okay, so Alan, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and ask you a little bit about how you use assessment tools and technologies within your work. It sounds like what you do is very uh, hands-on and kind of uh, led with you being in the room, spending your time leading these coaching sessions. But how do you integrate assessment and data to direct these development journeys? Yeah, a great question again. I I would say, first of all, it's not just me. You know, we have a team of people who um, engage in this work. But to your question directly, in the past, what would happen is, you know, you'd use a traditional assessment methodology where someone, you know, in the old days, people would actually get, you know, like one of the little bubble pages with the pencil and then you'd have to submit it into a Scantron. Then we evolved to having it be more web-based But even now with the web-based methodology of assessment uh, for personality assessment specifically, um, you know, there's no reason why someone should have to spend 45 minutes and answer six or 700 questions to get insight that we can get with 90, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a seven minute experience. It's interactive. It's, it's really, um, it's, it's more of an experience versus an assessment process, Mm -hmm. right? So that's not one. just that paper and pencil assessment now online. Correct. (laughs) Exactly. Great point. So, so what, what, what our thought process initially was, was that we want to you know, really get people in a room and use more of that traditional process. And it was really administratively laborious, extremely expensive, high touch in ways that really didn't provide as much return on the investment as it needed to for the organization. So if, if an organization had a budget, the majority of that budget may be eaten up 
by the one-on-one debriefs that were necessary to interpret the data from the reports that just you know were produced because someone filled out you know a questionnaire with 600 questions. So what we want to do is there's still a value in that process for what we'll call the very highest levels of an organization. Uh-huh. And there's a value in that clearly. What we want to do is think of a bell-shaped curve. We want to basically invert the resource allocation from the tails of that bell-shaped curve where we're being reactive to those disruptors in the system. And we're also allocating resources inappropriately to people who look like us, sound like us, and you know who, who were exhibiting bias in the selection methodology for those programs. And, and to take a play on words for deeper signals, we want to democratize that experience so we create a more cognitive, diverse workforce as it relates to you know, having a broader pool of people to draw from for those leadership positions and mitigate the likelihood that those people will become disruptors while keeping it a budget-neutral event for the organization and reallocating the resource. That's how we're applying it, training up in a really robust way at the very top of the house and then leveraging scalable technology from an assessment and a development perspective to drive it through to the most interstitial spaces of the organization down to a, a janitor or a medical assistant and everything in between. That's what the, the, the current assessment methodology and technology um, is offering us. And, and, and we're using it and we've deployed that methodology um, at organizations, Johns Hopkins, Cedar sinai NYU, uh, Yale, Mass General, et cetera. Fantastic. I mean, I think that's so cool how you're using technology to really, you know, facilitate and deliver on your mission, right? Of the mission of helping everyone become more self-aware. But, you know, by able to scale, you know, these types of tools, these types of assessments, so A, they're more engaging and you can get more accurate data, but also you can then deliver feedback, you know, to the masses and support behavior change in a way that you haven't or, or awareness in ways that haven't been able to before. Assessments stop becoming this luxury that is there to, you know, help, you know, the leadership elite, you know, feel better about themselves and, yes, become better leaders. But ultimately, it's there to kind of, you know, stroke their back a little bit and make them feel better. But actually, by scaling it, you start to get um, a significant impact on the performance of the organization. Because if you can help everyone better understand themselves, they can then thrive within their roles wherever they are. You then start to deeply link you know, individual human behavior, team behavior to, you know, very concrete organizational outcomes. I think this is the big gap within kind of the assessment space, within the IO psychology spaces, you know, organizations that, or organizational leaders that aren't IOs, like, well, why should I care about this? You know, how is this really going to change the way the organization works? If you can assess everyone, you have everyone that feedback, everyone that insight about themselves and each other, you then start to have a compounding effect on you know, performance and behavior and delivery, patient outcomes. You know, It really starts to um, become more systemic. I would add to your great commentary there, and I would say that you know, everyone's focused on culture change. And you know, the, the, the kind of the joke is, yeah, we had a webinar last week and we changed the whole <laughs> right? So Stephanie can appreciate that. Um, oh, yeah. But, but the, the idea is that if we really think about behavioral change, and that's really what this is about, not changing people, but changing the behavior. It's a very different construct and conversation. The idea is that we want to give people the insight to understand themselves, tie that insight and understanding to the things that matter to them, link that to the organizational outcomes that are required, 
and then ultimately get people to change because it's on their terms, not because of the enterprise or the organization. Here's a little, you know, a little newsflash. Once the behavior starts to change, the culture has no choice but to follow. Exactly. Most exactly. people try and we're going to change our culture. Yeah, good luck with that. If you yep. don't focus on your people and you do not meet people where they're at, it's basically this big exercise in futility, which is why 70 plus percent of these efforts fail. And in healthcare, it's probably even higher. Exactly. Like I feel like we, when it comes to culture change, we focus on the macro when in fact we should be focusing on the micro, right? Focus on the individual, help them understand themselves, help them change the behavior in you know some direction. And that's how you then get change, you know, one one team, one department at a time, right? And then you know, that's where you get the organization to where it needs to be. Well, this is why we love J3P because you are helping live out our mission too to democratize self-awareness and coaching. And I'm curious uh, if you could share maybe an example of, of a success story or of you know a way you saw using tools like Deeper Signals or others really help a company transform in some meaningful way. Yeah, I, I think one of, uh, one of the greatest examples that I can offer, well, there's two examples that I can offer. One was an experience that I had giving what's called grand rounds uh, for the Department of Surgery at Cedars-Sinai in uh, Los Angeles. And what we did was we deployed a link to the Deeper Signals Assessment in advance of this session. And we also had made it available while I was actually giving my presentation. So people had completed the assessment in advance. They had already kind of reviewed their reports right on their phones or their tablets or their laptops. Mm -hmm. But what was amazing is literally in the middle of my presentation, people were actually doing the assessment, getting the data. And what I didn't know until afterwards were people were actually sharing their reports with each other without me even prompting it. So therefore, that insight was having a compounding effect. And that, I think, to the leadership at uh, Cedars-Sinai, I think was really impressive in the sense that there was something that was so quick and easy that was deployed, that was really sophisticated in terms of its output. So it wasn't that people just did it and it was like, yeah, that's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like a storyteller or, you know, a, a palm reading. This mm -hmm. was actually very accurate. It had face validity and it really helped people understand themselves. And these people were top of the food chain within healthcare and medicine, surgeons, right? So that was one example. The other example was work that we had done with a, a, an independent medical group um, up in Oregon, and I can't pronounce, uh, Reese, the name of the state to, to save me. But what, what, <laughs> really, that, was that, that organization was an example of what we were talking about earlier, which is we started training the very top of the house, the executive team, the board, you know, all the leadership, both clinically and operationally. And then what we did was we worked with their new executive director of people and culture, and then we leveraged deeper signals to really train up the directors and the managers so that we really got the input and the same concepts around self-awareness into the lowest levels of the organization. And, um, and I will tell you that through the pandemic, this organization thrived. And it was one of those situations, mm -hmm. as I was mentioning, uh, with this organization up in Boston where I was suspect, you know, when you'd speak to these people and they're doing so well, you know, something's going on, something's not right. <laughs> Well, th this is exciting stuff. I I'm curious, you know, what's next for J3P Healthcare? What what are you excited about in the next coming year? What, what I'm what I'm really excited about is I'm really excited about taking 
really what we've built over the last almost decade in terms of the, the thought leadership and the credibility and the client list and the relationships that we've built and really having much more of a systemic impact on the healthcare system, leveraging everything I've just mentioned and partnerships yeah. like our partnership with Deeper Signals, which really help us expand that thought leadership and to really impact positive change on the system so that kids and people like my daughter um, aren't treated the way that my daughter was treated. That's the goal. Fantastic. Fantastic. Alan, thank you so much for joining Stephanie and I. This has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate your time and learning more about your amazing work that you do with J3T. Yeah, really, really important work. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If people want to uh, find out more about, about J3P, where's the best place to go? How can they get in touch with you? How can they learn more? Yeah, so probably our website, the, the best way to do that, www.j3p, as in people, healthcaresolutions.com. J3p, healthcaresolutions.com. And then uh, we have a, a way to contact us through our client services group right from the website. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks, Alan. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Alan.